This podcast is brought to you by DMX. Made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, Epic, DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com slash DMX. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. If you're new to our podcast, this is a podcast that focuses on the business of law, how the largest corporate law departments and their law firms do business. We're recording for a second time on Friday, April 28th. I'm joined this time by Casey Sullivan. Hello, Casey. Hi, Josh. So you've got an interview today with Judge Jed Rakoff. Judge Rakoff is senior judge of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. What else can you tell us about him? I spoke with him about a number of things, um, including a decision that came down last year regarding insider trading. Uh, Salmon uh, v. United States was the name of the case, and he had a, an influential hand in it by stepping in in the Ninth Circuit um, before it went up to the the top court, the Supreme, the Supreme Court. And um, it was uh, it was written about a lot in the press because uh, he had previously been had some of his rulings overturned by the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit had um, ruled uh, another way on, on this case, and the, the Supreme Court ended up agreeing with him, which was that um, uh, tip, uh, tippers in insider trading cases um, who leak information uh, don't necessarily need to have a, uh, an, a personal economic benefit um, in order for that to be considered wrongdoing. Now, you ran all over town getting this podcast. The first part was recorded in a studio at Bloomberg's headquarters. Uh, yes, we, we first started it off at uh, 731 Lexington uh, in, in a Bloomberg radio studio. We spent about 30 minutes there, um, covered a number of different issues, including his uh, career in the law and his views actually on the business of law. Um, he talked about how the profession has really become more of a business and how he feels like that's a bad thing that these law firms have become um, huge uh, global operations and not to put words in his mouth but um, you know you can you can listen to this uh, on the podcast but uh, he feels that in some cases lawyers as a result of that growth um, their representation is different in that they will do things for their clients in order to to he perceives uh, to retain their clients and that leads to them not necessarily always executing solid legal judgment um, and and doing things for clients that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise if they were at a, uh, a firm with institutional clients and they don't really need to build, you know build their book of business etc okay and then for part two you went down to meet the judge at his chambers yep I went down today and we spent a good 30 minutes to round out the discussion. Uh, we covered a number of issues there, including uh, some of his pet peeves of attorneys who appear before his court, as well as his views on what makes an effective attorney. 
So listeners will notice that parts one and two sound a little different. Here's uh, Judge Rakoff with Casey Sullivan. Uh, Casey has just asked the judge about the Salmon decision. So um, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York uh, until recently, pre-Perara, had very aggressively gone after white collar uh, 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 gone after insider traders and had racked up something like 81 consecutive convictions. And then um, a decision came down from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals that has uh, direct responsibility for uh, Mr. Perara's prosecutions uh, called Newman. And in that case, uh, uh, one of the holdings, there are many non-controversial holdings, but one holding was very controversial. And that holding was that someone who is an insider who um, tips an outsider with inside information has to <clears throat> receive a monetary benefit or he is not uh, guilty of insider trading. That was, I think it is fair to say, um, a break with previous law, and it had an immediate effect, and um, Mr. Barrara had to drop, um, I think, something like 11 of his uh, pending prosecutions because uh, he hadn't uh, um, anticipated that would be a requirement. Um, so, uh, a senior judge like myself gets to uh, be invited to sit on uh, other courts, and I was invited um, uh, to sit on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the Court of Appeals for California and the West Coast. And I've sat there numerous times before. This was a, a, a normal thing for me. Uh, and by sheer uh, fortuity, uh, the panel that I happened to be sitting on out there was by um, wrote uh, assigned uh, a case that raised the same issue that had been raised in the Newman case, and the panel that I was a part of uh, came to the conclusion that Newman was wrong in that respect, um, and I was asked to write the opinion, which I was uh, happy to do. Uh, so the Ninth Circuit, in a case called Salmon, uh, held that uh, a pecuniary uh, benefit was not uh, required, um, and there are lots of insider traders who will tip outsiders for a variety of reasons. Uh, in the Salmon case, it was a relative, and they and the uh, tipper was uh, trying to give a financial benefit to a relative, but was not uh, benefiting pecuniarily himself. Um, so. Uh, that created what's called a split in the circuits uh, between uh, the two courts of appeals. So the Supreme Court uh, took the case to resolve that, uh, and they were <clears throat> kind enough to uh, affirm my opinion uh, eight to nothing, um, which uh, my joke is I was hoping for nine to nothing, but I'll take eight to nothing. <laughs> 
there was a lot of press at the time, you know, in the New Yorker and a number of different publications. We covered it as well about how this was kind of a sweet victory for you, um, you know, given your uh, history with the Second Circuit and the Second Circuit had, you know, overturned um, some of your previous rulings. And, you know, this was one where the Supreme Court, uh, you know, affirmed your uh, your finding. Um can you speak to that and, and, and what what this meant to you personally? I, I, I think while I saw that kind of um, tack taken in the media, it's not really accurate. Um, it, I've been affirmed many times by the Second Circuit. I've been reversed sometimes by the Second Circuit. Uh, that goes with the territory. Um, and my own view is that a... Uh, judge who's never reversed is probably a not is probably a judge who's not doing his job uh, because he's not uh, seeking to expand the law and look at new issues and apply the law to new situations um, and things of that sort um, so I'm not um, uh, bothered in an emotional sense when I'm reversed I'm, I'm disappointed of course um, uh, the uh, so uh, I didn't view the Salmon case as some sort of vindication or anything like that, um, but I do think the um, Supreme Court um, recognized that um, the reasoning in the Ninth Circuit opinion was persuasive. It's kind of part of your identity, you know, um, you know, when you read about uh, yourself in various publications about how you've come out with these bold rulings. And I think at one point you even said that you knew or suspected that, you know, something that you ruled on would later be reversed. Um, you know, is there any shame to being reversed as as a judge? And, you know, you don't seem to be faced by it in the least. <laughs> the uh, as I indicated i i think it, there's a shame if you're never reversed then i think uh, you're probably not doing your job you're just uh, uh operating like an automaton um the uh the one case that i thought it was very likely i would be reversed was my holding the death penalty unconstitutional because i didn't think that the um Supreme Court, let alone the Court of Appeals, had yet moved um, as far uh, in analyzing that issue as um, I thought they uh, that the, I thought that the law required. Uh, but I um, uh, you know, remain quite certain in my own mind that I had it right, and I remain pretty confident that the Supreme Court will eventually. Uh, come around to my point of view. There's already some justices who've said as much. Um, Justice Breyer, for example, uh, issued a dissent um, uh, about a year or two ago in which he uh, strongly indicated that uh, he would vote to hold the death penalty unconstitutional. So I'm hoping that the Supreme Court catches up with me in due course. Uh, speaking more broadly about the judiciary in today's world, um, you know, the uh, President Trump has been very aggressive in criticizing, you know, a number of decisions that have come out uh, against uh, his efforts, uh, specifically regarding the travel ban recently. Um, but, you know, focusing on the comments that he has made, you know, calling a, a judge a so-called judge um, and, and other uh, critical comments, um, you know, are you concerned at all about the rule of law? And what are your thoughts about, um, you know, these comments being uh, made against your fellow colleagues? 
So um, judges, including myself, uh, are forbidden by um, judicial ethics from commenting uh, on an issue like the one you've just raised. Uh, it's a little ironic. It's a one-way street. Um, uh, litigants, uh, even litigants who uh, hold high public office, uh, have a constitutional right to criticize judge uh, judges and um, uh, their rulings. Uh, judges cannot uh, criticize uh, their criticizers. Um, so I can't really address that other than to point out um, that uh, if judges are silent when they're being criticized, it's not because they're um, not sensitive to criticism, but it's that they are precluded uh, by law from commenting. Um, to, would love to talk a, a, a bit about your own personal journey and your career path. Uh, you grew up in Philadelphia. You went to Swarthmore College, uh, received a law degree from Harvard Law School in 1969. Um, you uh, clerked for the Honorable Abraham Friedman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, uh, and then spent two years in private practice at Debevoise. Uh, what was it like practicing at, at Debevoise all of those years ago uh, as an associate? So Debevoise uh, was a wonderful firm. It was filled uh, then, and I'm sure it's filled now, with uh, uh, not only extremely capable lawyers, but lovely, lovely human beings. However, uh, the litigation at that time was completely boring. Um, uh, it was mostly insurance defense work. Uh, I shouldn't call it boring because I'm sure there are those who find it exciting. Uh, but for me, it did not get any juices flowing. Um, so much as I liked the people at Debevoise, um, uh, I was uh, pretty keen to move on. Um, and then you spent uh, seven years as a f federal prosecutor uh, with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. Um, after that, uh, you went on to become a partner at Mudge Rose, um, and then were with uh, uh, you, you went with uh, Freed Frank um, and specialized in criminal defense. Um, what, what, what were your experience like dur during those years? Well, those were thrilling and rewarding years. Um, both in the U.S. Attorney's Office and in private practice, uh, a prosecutor gets his or her kicks from putting bad guys in prison, and it's as simple as that. Um, and the Southern District of New York, because it's in Manhattan, has the uh, great advantage of having uh, many complicated financial cases. And uh, I had the good fortune to eventually become the chief of the uh, securities fraud prosecutions there. Um, and these were very complicated cases against uh, the very best lawyers in New York. And um, uh, it was very challenging. Um, uh, but the real ultimate satisfaction was seeing people brought to justice who had committed serious crimes who probably would not have been caught by uh, any other U.S. attorney's office except this very uh, expert and, and sophisticated uh, uh, office. Um, the th 
equal satisfaction of being a defense lawyer uh, comes not so much from the people you are defending, although some of them are, turn out to be lovely people, but not all. Um, the But the satisfaction comes from uh, making sure that our system works the way it's supposed to work. Um, it's in the criminal forum that the Constitution is really put to the test um, because often these are bad people or even if they are not bad people, they are alleged to be bad people. Uh, and so the stack, so the, 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 the system, uh, if it's not true to the Constitution, is stacked against them. Uh, and you see that happening in uh, some courts. And the role of a defense lawyer is to convince the judge and jury that the Constitution and the rights and liberties of citizens apply to all citizens, good or bad, popular or unpopular. And that's a great satisfaction, too. What are the, some of the most significant ways that you've, you've personally seen the business of law change over uh, your years? Well, I've seen one very good thing and one very bad thing. Uh, the very good thing is uh, the great diversity of lawyers that we have now. Um, the um, women are a substantial part, maybe a majority uh, of the population of lawyers, uh, 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 blacks and Hispanics, though not as uh, uh, large a group as uh, I hope they will become uh, have greatly increased um, uh, in the population of lawyers, uh, particularly in big law. That is a total change in my lifetime. Um, when I was uh, first in law school and growing up in Philadelphia, if you were uh, black or a woman or Hispanic, forget it. You are not going to get a job in a big law firm. Uh, and there are a lot of famous cases that uh, prove that. Uh, so that's been a wonderful change. Um, the bad change has been that the law, which was always a business to some degree, but was also a profession with professional ideals, has become ever more a business, ever less a profession. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that, but the uh, biggest uh, reason is economic pressures. Um, uh, the uh, law uh, uh, became an ever larger part of corporate budgets, and it was a non-productive part of corp of corporate budgets. Budgets and the companies perfectly reasonably sought to um, uh, decrease uh, that. Uh, expense, uh, partly by bringing lawyers in-house uh, to do the more routine work, but partly um, by being uh, uh, much more selective and competitive in uh, their hiring of lawyers. Um, and the result was that the um, relationship between lawyers and their corporate clients, which was uh, 50 years ago extremely close, uh, became much more fragmented. And the further result of that was that lawyers feared they would um, lose clients if they didn't do what the client wanted, even if as a professional matter, um, 
they would have once have recommended against doing it. Um, so that's, I think, a, an unfortunate change that's occurred. How have you seen that play out, played out uh, before the court that uh, you've uh, presided over? So the situation 30, 40 years ago was that if a client suggested a very aggressive approach to a lawyer that basically was not within the spirit of the law, although a clever lawyer could concoct a um, a rationale for it. So it wasn't strictly illegal, but it was clearly not what the law had in mind. Um, The lawyer felt free to tell his client, really, we shouldn't do that. Um, uh, because he had confidence that he would not lose the client under those circumstances. With the economic change that I just described, um, he now no longer could say no. And moreover, he felt that the best way of preserving his relationship with the client was being as aggressive as possible. So you will see lawyers much more frequently, in my view, taking uh, positions that um, are uh, at the very edge of what um, could be considered permissible under the law uh, because they uh, feel they need to um, impress the client with how uh, aggressive and tough and creative they are. Um, and um, um, I think that uh, is an unfortunate trend, um, but it's one that I've observed in many cases. Okay, that was part one recorded in a Bloomberg studio. You're going to hear a little different sound quality here. Here is part two recorded in the judge's chambers. Uh, Yesterday, you were talking about this conflict that there is between um, attorneys who are at these huge law firms now and their representation in court. And sometimes their clients will ask them to do things that aren't necessarily the appropriate way of going about things. Um, Can you think of any specific examples from that? Yeah, let me give you two examples. One of the way it worked in the old days uh, and one um, of the uh, less good way it works now. So when I was a young associate at uh, a major law firm, um, a... uh, senior vice president of a company that was a long-term client of uh, that law firm came to the CEO with a brand new idea, very excited, very um, uh, sure that it would make the company a lot more money, but it was also um, kind of um, um, on the edge. And the CEO, which would have been typical in those days, said to the senior vice president, check it with Oscar. Oscar was the lawyer who was the point man at the law firm I was at. It's actually Oscar Riebhausen, who was quite a famous lawyer in his day, um, president of the New York City Bar Association. And so the uh, executive vice president uh, uh, ran the 
uh, issue by Oscar. Oscar gave it to a couple of associates, including me, to take a look at. And the senior associate concluded that while this was arguably within the law in the sense it was on the fringe, but didn't go past the line, it was totally contrary to the spirit of the law, the purpose of the law, in this case, the securities law. And uh, the associate felt it would be unethical for the law firm to approve that proposal. Uh, but uh, Oscar Repousing called in the senior vice president, and he had the associates present as well, I think as an object lesson of how things worked in those days. And he said to the uh, senior vice president, oh, this is such a clever idea, uh, but, you know, uh, it's just going to invite litigation. The SEC is going to uh, want to uh, uh, scrutinize it. You know what those plaintiff's lawyers are like. They'll probably bring some sort of class action um, the uh, here, my, my suggestion is that uh, you can accomplish at least half of what you had in mind uh, without any such risk by uh, taking this uh, different approach that Oscar then recommended. And the senior vice president was thrilled. He still had a good proposal. He went back to his boss and uh, everyone was happy. The real th- reality of what was going on in that situation, in my opinion, was that Mr. Reebhausen recognized that while the firm could legally say that this proposal was within the uh, letter of the law, it was not within the spirit of the law, but he didn't present it that way to the client. Uh, but he knew he, the client had confidence in him because there was this long-term stable relationship. And so he felt comfortable saying to the client, well, this is too risky. Let's try a different approach. And the, the approach that uh, Mr. Repasser recommended was one that was both ethically uh, uh, satisfactory and totally within the spirit of the law. So that was a great object lesson. Now, that's not the way it happens today. Today, the uh, uh, the relationship between the big companies and their counsel uh, is very different because the um, uh, for economic reasons uh, the bread and butter work has gone in house in these um, uh, large uh, in house. Uh, legal establishments within companies. And I think in General Electric, which was the first to go to this route, it's something like 800 lawyers now. Um, uh, And um, then you only go to the big firms for the uh, more specialized work or for the more uh, outre kinds of situations. Um, and that means you go to different firms. You pick out whoever is the ideal expert in this particular subspecialty, and you go to that person. And the result of that is that there's fierce economic competition among the firms. There's always some competition, but now it is uh, to the point that the professional ethics and the professional responsibilities of the firms have been affected. Uh, and the uh, result is that in the situation I just described, uh, uh, today, um, the lawyer would 
say, well, uh, it's a little risky, but I think we can sign off on it. Um, and he would think, be thinking to himself, gee, if I say no, the guy's going to go to someone else who will say yes, and I don't want to lose that business. So it's a very different situation. And I see that in my court, as I mentioned before, in p- uh, people taking um, uh, much more aggressive positions and much more aggressive tactics um, than was uh, once the case. It's not particularly effective with the judges, um, uh, but it is effective with the clients. And since most cases settle, uh, th- that has to be a, a factor that is taken in. An example I saw in my court uh uh, some years ago uh, related to, to the uh, Enron case. And the um, uh, part of the Enron fraud was that uh, they took a, a 7% loan, a billion-dollar loan from the Chase Bank, but they disguised it as income. And the way they did that was that the... Uh, 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 Enron purported to sell a billion dollars of uh, oil for future delivery to an offshore company that Enron had set up that was nominally a separate uh, company but really was controlled by by Chase and by Enron. Uh, uh, And then the billion dollars was sold to, in oil, was sold to this uh, company uh, to be delivered in the future. Uh, the company then sold it to Chase, as if Chase were <laughs> in the oil business. Uh, Chase then sold it f- uh, at a uh, billion dollars plus 7% uh, to another offshore company, which sold it back to Enron. So it was a circular transaction. Uh, it was all done within... Uh, an hour. All these uh, transactions were simply paper transactions. No oil actually ever passed uh, to anyone. But the result was that Enron could book a uh, billion dollar sale um, and then the contracts were set up in such a way that the repayment was the following year, um, so at 7%. So it was really a $1 billion one-year loan at 7%, but it looked on Enron's books as a billion dollars in income. Uh, now, Chase had to sign off on that, and the lawyers for Chase had to sign off on it. And they uh, eventually, the matter came into a trial in my court. And uh, the lawyers uh, from a very large law firm that was that had represented Chase at the time were on the stand, and they were being asked questions like, "Did you know this was a totally circular transaction?" Yes. Did you know that this was really a disguised loan? And although they gave a little more equivocal answer to that. The uh, I think a fair reading of their answer was yes. Um, 
and why did you sign off? Well, the law in this area is complicated, and we felt it could we could do so consistent with the letter of the law. Um, so maybe I'm just a, a, a simple-minded, barefoot federal judge, but I was shocked. Uh, and uh, the the uh, 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 that that that. The lawyers who represent the great profession of the law uh, that has been my life and that I have always so much admired uh, didn't have any embarrassment uh, in participating in a transaction that whatever its legality uh, or illegality was designed to conceal the reality of what was going on. Does it matter from your perspective how a firm is managed um, and how that translates to attorney performance? Um, Are there certain types of firms that you're more likely to see that kind of behavior at? Well, there are firms, of course, where um, the culture is... uh, uh, more professional or less professional there's there's there is variation in that regard um, I think um, a problem in any large firm these days and I was uh, a partner in two large firms before I went on the bench and I uh, uh, have nothing but respect for for many large firms um, but uh, a problem is the firms have grown so large that it's sometimes difficult to uh, uh, maintain a uh, overall careful, um, punctilious corporate uh, or law firm culture. Um, so um, uh, I've had a number of cases from firms that basically I think were intending to do uh, the right thing, where mistakes were made simply because um, uh, the right hand in city. X didn't know what was going on in the left hand in city Y. Um, uh, the uh, uh, I think a different uh, aspect of it is that no one goes to a law firm for life anymore in the way that they used to, and that's again a, a reflection of this uh, economic change. Uh, uh, most firms in the old days paid their partners on a lockstep seniority basis. Now, they're paid largely on the basis of uh, whether they bring a business or not, the so-called rainmakers. And the um, uh, uh, that means, first of all, that status within the firm is a function of how much money you bring in, rather than whether you're a so-called lawyer statesman, which was the way you achieved status in the old days. And secondly, um, the, it means that uh, there's not uh, the same loyalty to the firm as a firm, uh, and people move around um, uh, uh, because they are offered attractive deals at other big firms. Um, and so the uh, result is uh, there's uh, less cohesion within the firm. Uh, and that in some cases can impact the ability of the firm to enforce ethical uh, and professional standards. Um, uh, It's, uh, for example, 
going back to the move um, of so many routine legal matters in-house, which makes economic sense. But the general counsel of a company does not have the same freedom as an outside partner in an outside law firm in the old days because his job, his tenure, everything about his situation is dependent on the executives above him. So um, uh, it's it, he can say no to people below him, but it's very hard to say no to people above him. Now, the corollary in the law firms is that it's very hard to say no uh, to a rainmaker. Um, and uh, there's... Uh, uh, because most law firms are not set up in a hierarchical way in any event, um, uh, the, there's no real real way to say to a major rainmaker, uh, um, what you're doing uh, does not redound to the highest professional ethics that we prize. Um, there's no one who's going to say that. They may say it to a young associate, but they won't say it to... Um, the the guy who brings in the biggest business. Um, outside of that, any other pet peeves that you have of attorneys in court? Well, I want to stress, first of all, that despite the changes I've just described, uh, uh, most attorneys are ethical, most attorneys are professional, and I will say that most attorneys who appear in my court um uh, conduct themselves uh, in an appropriate and um, uh, effective uh, manner. But I will say this. When they're not within the court, attorneys, some attorneys, often um, do not abide by the rules as closely as they should. So... I will often see, because I handle the discovery matters in my own cases, I don't uh, delegate them. So um, I'll be looking at uh, at a transcript, and I will see an attorney who in my court has behaved totally properly, acting like a wild man and totally disrupting the depositions in ways that are completely improper because there's no judicial officer there and he or she thinks they can get away with it. Um, And frankly, uh, too many times they do uh, because judges don't always get to see uh, the transcripts uh, of of, uh, some of the outrageous things that go on in depositions. So that's one peeve. Um, uh, a, A there are little things that new attorneys always have to learn that are, I won't call them peeves, but um, for for example, uh, a common mistake that a young attorney makes is the judge will ask them a question and they will just continue on with their argument because they have worked so hard <laughs> to prepare. Uh, and uh, what they don't realize is uh, if the judge is asking a question, it's because he or she has some doubt about uh, their argument and they need to uh, respond to the question and not ignore it. Uh, but that's uh, you, you almost never see an experienced attorney making that mistake. Um, what about on the other hand, uh, you know, are there recurring qualities that you see in the most effective advocates? Yes, there are two. First is total credibility. And what do I mean by that? Obviously, part of that is never lying, but it, 
I, I, it's very rare that I see a lawyer lying in, in, in the courtroom. But what I'm talking about is uh, fairly describing both the good and the bad. So, for example, uh, if a lawyer is arguing a legal point and there's a case that is uh, not helpful to that lawyer's position, but the other side, for one reason or another, hasn't picked it up. Um, a um, ineffective lawyer will think, aha, I'm not going to mention it. My adversary didn't mention it. Uh, maybe the judge hasn't seen it. I'm not going to say uh, anything about it. And he's not required to say anything about it if the adversary hasn't raised it. But a good lawyer, an effective lawyer, uh, will uh, say, Judge, uh, although uh, somehow uh, it hasn't been brought uh, yet into the argument, I want to bring to your honor's attention a case that on first reading would appear to be opposite to my argument, uh, and I, I don't want to ignore that case. And now let me tell you why I think you don't have to follow that case, and and you know the lawyer will then make uh, uh, try to spin the case in effect his way. But you know that's so impressive that that they are so committed to uh, uh, the fairness of the process that they will bring to the judge's attention something that even the the you know that was overlooked by their adversary, but is still negative to their position. And the same thing goes for facts. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, an effective lawyer will um, say, uh, often right up front, first thing in this argument, judge, uh, there's one big glaring fact that seems to cut against my position. I want to deal with that first. Uh, here it is. Um, uh, and 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 the judge says, boy, that's a guy you can trust. That's a guy you have to pay attention to. He is really fair. Now, you may or may not come out that guy's way, but you are so impressed. And that carries over because, for example, if a case goes to trial, in the heat of trial, the judge will have to make snap rulings. In a, uh, you don't have the time to go research and say, come back tomorrow, or you know, there's the jury sitting there. You've got to make a quick ruling, and the lawyers maybe will come to the sidebar and give you a two-second argument. And if you know one lawyer is a guy who never misstates the facts, always gives both sides, and the other lawyer is less so that way, that's going to affect how you rule in that situation, because you don't have the time to check it out, so you rely on his credibility. So credibility is key. Uh, the other thing I would think is uh, very important is uh, uh, not to be a screamer or a shouter. Uh, uh, in federal court, you rarely see this. I can remember from the days when I was in private practice, you see it more in state court. Why is that? It's because the state courts are over-docketed, overcrowded, and the judges have to decide things much too quickly because they just don't have the time. And so the guy who yells and screams sometimes it succeeds just because uh, uh, that's all the judge hears. It's a, it's a very unfortunate tendency. In federal court, it works just the opposite. Someone starts uh, acting uh, intemperately, um, most judges, including myself, will turn off uh, and think this is not what the law is about. The law is about balance. The law is about nuance. Uh, the law is not about 
um, um, uh, pretending you're on a talk show. So. <laughs> um, do, do judges, uh, you know, talk or gossip about lawyers uh, appearing before their court, uh, out of court? Um, yes, yeah, not gossip, of course. <laughs> uh, the uh, so most judges go to lunch with other judges, um, and not every day, but but frequently. Um, rarely do they discuss the substance of their cases. Uh, I think most judges feel a little reluctant to to discuss the substance when the lawyers are not there. That's that's sort of like having a another judge who hasn't been even part of the case uh, have a say in the in the decision. So. Um, though there's nothing in the law that prohibits it, rarely do you see judges uh, talking about the substance of the case. But what they will talk about is the lawyers. Um, and they will say, boy, today I had Mr. Jones in front of me, and he was terrific. And boy, is he, he just and, – and, and they'll you know give some examples. Or they will say, well, today I had Mr. Smith in front of me, and what a bum. And, the, and that – can really hurt a lawyer in a case before other judges who are listening to this. Um, so yes, there is that kind of discussion. Uh, you wrote recently about access to legal services for ordinary U.S. citizens. Um, you know, it's a real issue. Uh, how how do you resolve something like that? And uh, you know, well, there are two aspects of it. First, not to summarize all the reasons that that I set forth in my article, but just something that. It, uh, you know, uh, every uh, citizen of the United States recognizes um, no no one can, except for the very rich, can afford lawyers for everyday matters. Uh, uh, lawyers' fees have gotten really out of control. The statistics are that big firm lawyers' fees have risen 300 times the rate of inflation uh, was uh, 300%, three times the rate of inflation uh, over the last um, 20 years or so, yeah, even in a, in, during a period like the financial crisis, uh, when you would have thought that fees might have gone down, they didn't. Um, and it's, it's much too expensive. So uh, there are other problems in access to justice as well, but the bottom line is that many people can never get into court or even hire a lawyer, forget about litigation, hire a lawyer for some simple little dispute, some simple little matter. Um, um, other people who do get into court or if they are defendants or hauled into court uh, wind up representing themselves, which is almost always a disaster uh, because um, they're not they don't know the law and they don't uh, they can't do a good job. I think a partial solution, not a total solution, um, is the equivalent of what in the medical field are called nurse practitioners. Um, So these, in the legal analogy, these would be people who would go to um, law school or its equivalent for one year, uh, which is enough to learn the basics, and then would have maybe two years of training when working for someone who was already certified before they could become certified. Um, And once they became certified, uh, they would be permitted to do basic legal tasks at 
uh, and this would be, a, in my view, at a much cheaper rate. Um, so they could draft wills. They could uh, appear, appear in landlord-tenant court. They could appear in family court. Um, uh, they, they could do a lot of the um, uh, legal work that is now being done not at all or being done at a price that no one can afford. Um, uh, so that would be my solution. To make that solution work, you have to change the law in most of the states because that would be considered the, quote, unauthorized practice of law. Uh, and lawyers, like all guilds, are very good at protecting their own <laughs> economic self-interest. So there would be opposition from the organized bar, I feel sure. But I think that would be at least a good first step towards um, eliminating or at least mitigating the problem. You took senior status uh, in 2010. Um, any thoughts about returning to private practice? None. None. <laughs> I've got the world's best job. The, uh, 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 it is, I cannot tell you how free I feel as a judge compared to when I was a lawyer. And I enjoyed very much being a lawyer. But a lawyer, in the end, is obligated not to speak his own mind, but to make the best arguments he can for his client, whether the client be the government or a defendant or whoever. Um, a judge within the limits of the law um, gets to say what he or she thinks is right, and I wouldn't give that up for anything. So. That's all for this episode, which was brought to you by DMX, made by the largest global e-discovery software and service provider, Epic. DMX delivers e-discovery business intelligence in North America, Europe, and Asia, and is powered by Microsoft. To learn more about how you can use DMX on your next e-discovery project, go to epicsystems.com slash DMX. For more on the business of law, check out biglawbusiness.com. If you'd like to contact us, our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow B Big Law Business on Twitter at Big Law Biz. Follow Josh on Twitter at Josh Block NYC. Follow me on Twitter at Casey underscore Big Law. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks for a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it. 